It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And as we told you in the past, that's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Ottawa and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. At that point, you type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can also listen on one of your favorite podcast platforms or you can go to our SoundCloud and you can also like us there if you like. That would be very nice of you if you're listening on our SoundCloud. And you may also be listening on one of the other radio stations that are currently carrying Moment of Truth. We also welcome those listeners. It's a pleasure also to welcome to the show my guest, which is Nanish Kotak. He is a barrister and solicitor and he works for Kotak Law. And that is a law agency that services the greater Toronto area. It's a pleasure to have Nanish here. We're going to be talking about the kind of things that that Nanish and his firm very much focus in, and that is disability and personal injury. And that is something that may be of great interest to a lot of people these days, because I guess ever since COVID-19 took effect, we have all heard a lot more about uh, the mental stress people are dealing with. But a little bit more about Nanish, first of all. He holds a wealth of experience having appeared in trials with and without juries at the Superior Court of Justice and the Ontario Court of Justice. He has also represented clients and conducted appeals at the federal court level in the trials division. And Nanish has appeared before numerous tribunal panels, including the Financial Services Commission and the Social Security Tribunal. He has been featured in several televised interviews on the subject of personal injury and long-term disability claims. So, as I say, it's uh, good that we have uh, Nanish with us to talk about these things. Nanish, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. You know, Nanish, I'm always fascinated by people's choices of the kind of uh, employment and careers that they end up in. What can you tell us? How did you end up working in, in law? What attracted you to, you to that? And, and specifically more, you know, in terms of personal injury and those kind of things. <laughs> Thank you, David. It's a, it's a really good question. You know, I, I suppose I have to really go back in time. Many, many years uh, <laughs> when those initial career choices were, were made. Um, I was always, you know, good in, in subjects that I suppose required more debate, um, mm. where there was no really clear-cut answers, whether it's political science or history or English, as opposed to uh, other subjects like math or the various sciences that uh, really have definitive, definitive answers, and they were not really my forte. So I kind of gravitated to, towards it, uh, doing an undergrad in, in, in history and political science and then moving on to law school. And, uh, you know, I've been practicing now, I, I guess it's uh, 20, uh, I think 26 years, I believe, uh, uh, actually 27 years, I think now. Um, uh, time, time just flies and I absolutely enjoy it. In terms of uh, the area of law that I, I practice in, that, that primarily is representing disabled uh, uh, Canadians uh, through their short or long-term disability claims or, or even uh, through uh, personal injury. It's, I, I think it's really uh, just that satisfaction that, that we get at the end of the day from that we see with the client when we're able to, 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 to help them uh, get through very difficult traumatic situations in their life. And they're up against the David and Goliath fight. You know, they're up against big insurance companies with a lot of, a lot of resources, a lot of corporate resources. And having the success uh, uh, battling those companies and, and, and helping people 
you know, in some way, uh, get on with their life in, in um, uh, you know, towards their recovery. It just brings a tremendous amount of satisfaction to to myself and, and to our firm. Hmm. Interesting. You know, the thing that caught me as you were speaking there was when you said no clear cut answer um, in, in terms of debating and those kind of things, which, of course, there is a lot of a lot of debating in law and in court cases, uh, as I'm sure, you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely there is, you know, uh, David, uh, that's what litigation is. And really, uh, you know, when you're when you're, you're having disputes with insurance companies that often results in litigation and uh um, and negotiation, mm. uh, because at the at, you know at some point in time there's two you realize there's two sides to a story. Mm. Uh, we feel very strongly about our client side, but you know there's there's risk too that um, they might not be successful or will not get a hundred percent success, and there tends to be compromise that's made in terms of a negotiated settlement for the majority of the claims. I would say that's probably a big part of what you're talking about, that negotiation and probably both sides coming to some sort of agreement in many cases. And it does, you know, put a sense of closure for for, for the client. Uh, you know, most of our clients are, have um, really some sort of, of mental health uh, illness. And um, it, often there's an accompanying physical complaint as well. Mm. Uh, but being off work, not being able to do the daily activities that they normally do, um, it it. it it accelerates maybe pre-existing depression and anxiety that, that, that someone already has, or it actually causes it. So we have many, many clients who come to us and their, their claims, for example, have been denied for disability benefits, whether it's Canada pension plan or short-term disability or long-term disability uh, for claims uh, uh, related to their mental health. It could be anxiety, depression. We see cases where there's been post-traumatic stress disorder, um, uh, where there is uh, underlying uh, psychiatric issues, borderline personality, OCD, where um, and these are more difficult cases for the claimant themselves to advocate for themselves, quite frankly. Um, you know, number of reasons for this. First of all, you know, mental illness has had a stigma to it through history. And yes, there have been changes uh, to this. Uh, you know, you have Bell Let's Talk, et cetera, and uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, usually in May. So there certainly have been strides in society, uh, but there still is a stigma. And what that stigma does, it holds people back in terms of, um, you know, coming to terms or acknowledging that they have uh, depression or anxiety or even, in fact, seeking help. And there often is a lack of resources or resources cost money. Uh, someone may go to their family doctor with a complaint of, of anxiety, maybe from workplace stress, or let's make things worse. So they see the family doctor, they may get a referral to a psychologist, but they don't have the money to pay for it because it's not covered by OHIP. They may get a referral to a psychiatrist, which could take six months to a year to, to get. Um, then, you know, of course, during COVID times, it, it's, it's a lot longer than that. Um, so harder for individuals to advocate themselves to get the right treatment they need and easier for insurance companies to deny those types of claims, David, because they're not, you know, mental illness is not often cannot be seen unless there's a brain injury of some sort, cannot be seen on a scan or an MRI or an X-ray, just as, you know, unlike a physical injury, which can be seen that way, a broken bone or, or even cancer or inflammatory diseases can be, can be seen on scans. So it's much easier for insurance companies to say, we're not going to pay this claim. We think, you know, you can work. We think there is insufficient 
medical evidence. And we see this time and time again with the cases we get. The majority of our disability cases that we see come through our door um, have a, a major component of mental illness. And the act of dealing with insurance companies that, uh, that, that individuals go through, um, dealing with the claims person on the telephone, questioning them about their life, about their social media, for example, uh, what time do you wake up? Well, why can't you try to go for a walk? Why can't you do this? These type of questions they get asked. That that stress mm. uh, of dealing with an insurance company, it makes things worse. And unfortunately, it also makes many people just give up. Okay, mm-hmm. you're not going to pay me. I don't need this hassle and, and give up. And that, I tell you, is, is very unfortunate because there is recourse. There are ways to make the insurance companies pay money that they're supposed to do. They took the premiums. So right. if somebody meets a disability test, they're supposed to pay that claim. And that is where we come in. And that is where I, you know, I, I just have a passion for this, uh, to, 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 to fight for the little guy in, in these types of situations, David. Right. Geez, so many things there that we could uh, elaborate on. The thing that stood out to me is going back to one of the first things you said was the stigma around mental health issues. And, and the thing is that they're they're on the rise. In fact, uh, you know, over the last year, COVID has brought out so much of that within all all, all manner of, of people, ages. We we hear so much about the stress that and and the mental health issues of youth now because of COVID nineteen. Uh, you know, the things that you're talking about about the fact that um, they took the premiums, the, the insurance companies took the premiums. They should be paying these, but they throw these all these roadblocks up for people, almost adding insult to injury and making it more stressful for people to apply or try to get through the hoops that they need to in order to to get their claim uh, uh, um, approved. And yes, some people find it too much. They give up. But yeah. we're, we're all people when it comes down to it. And when I hear things like stigma and the fact that insurance companies are throwing up these things, it, it almost... You know, it comes back to, I guess, the bottom line is the, the, the mighty dollar and, and those kind of things. But we're all people. And I wonder why we make it so difficult for each other to, to live a healthy life. You know, I, I agree, David. Sometimes people feel that they have a role to play. Mm. And whether it be to, you know, be a gatekeeper for how much mm. insurance proceeds get paid out um, mm. that the caseworker may have, I, I, you know, that, that's a possibility. You've made a very valid, valid point about the increase in, 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 in mental health difficulty and, and the worsening of mental health illnesses during uh, COVID. And, there, and this is not just, you know, anecdotal evidence. This is, there have been studies, you know, mm-hmm. there, um, I guess there's a group called Workplace Intelligence, and they looked at sort of the global workforce, and, and there are the view that 78% of the global workforce um, uh, has been negatively affected in terms of their their mental health. You know, mm-hmm. pre-COVID, mm-hmm. the stats were from uh, CMHA that one in five Canadians uh, at some point in their life has suffered from mental illness. Um, and now, you know, the stats that are coming out uh, are that, uh, and this was reported, I think, in Global News that, you know, one quarter of Canadians have reported that their mental health has declined. And that's since the first wave. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're, we're, it's almost, you know, I think we're in the third wave yep. at, at this at this point in time. Um, and you mentioned the youth, and, mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you're right on point. Look at the effect in terms of the youth who would have been entering the workforce mm. or maybe had just entered the workforce but mm. were the first people to be let go mm. because of lack of seniority, et cetera. 
there's a generation that's going to be carrying, um, you know, the weight of the isolation mm. that they've had to go through um, for the past year. They're going to carry that as part of their formative years, really, you know, young adults, uh, maybe getting into the workforce in their, in their early 20s. Uh, they're going to carry that with them. In turn, and it's going to affect the lifestyle choices they make in the future, where they decide to live, the type of jobs they will decide to get, certain anxiety mm-hmm. that were um, made worse during the pandemic may stay with them. So we are, you know, it's, it's, we're not just dealing with one pandemic, a COVID pandemic. We are dealing with the effect of that on, on, on people's mental health. That, that is a second pandemic and that will stay with people, um, you know, uh, without, uh, if they keep it inside without the right treatment, uh, without discussions, this is something that will stay with people for life. The effect of of this on, of of this pandemic on their mental health, Uh, David, that, that, that's how I see it. Hmm. Nanish, I'd like to ask you this. I know that you have seen, as you pointed out, the, the numbers prior to and the numbers now that we're into the, as you say, going to the third wave of probably COVID-19. And, and you've seen an increase of these things. But the difference is that many of us are working from home. Now, we have to thank all those frontline workers that have gone out to work and help us through this situation. And just thinking about the stress and the anxiety that they have must have been going through. But for the, the number of people that are working from home... There, again, is a difference, and I'm not sure how that might affect what you do. Are, are you seeing those kind of things, and how do you think that might affect claims going forward? Yes, you've made some really very bad points here. So first, with respect to essential workers, as you mentioned, you know, we're not just talking about in frontline workers. We're not just talking about emergency personnel who have had some training in mm. how to deal with mm. escalated stress mm. situations. We're talking about grocery store workers, liquor store workers who deal with random customers on a, on a daily basis who are, they're worried about their own safety and and that of their, of their family members. I've seen, we've had many cases of of grocery store uh, tenants who had policies who've been denied for Mm. disability claims because they just simply cannot take the stress regardless of the precautions that are there. They're, they're so worried about bringing COVID back to home. Mm. Uh, They've been on unable to work. So we've right. seen cases like that. You mentioned the people who are, who are in fact accommodated by being able to work from home. It, you know, there are, the positive thing I suppose is this, is that you get to spend time with family if that's, yep. if that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it is for the most part, for most people, for yep. some it's not. The other aspect of it is, is the changing in the future, the acceleration of technology and, and how we can, work in the future so that the workplace can be more flexible mm. of giving you more option to work from home if they've mm-hmm. seen it work. Yep. So that's on a sort of an economic uh, level. The stresses though are this, you've got such social ice, you know, you're isolated, you work from home, you don't have that exposure to the co- your colleagues anymore right. to have that feedback, you know, that personal connection. You're, you're pulled away from that. And for people who already, um, you know, have, have mental illness, that isolation can make the condition worse. Mm. Um, you know, you're feeling very alone and, and quite depressed. That, that can happen. And think about this, and I think you've alluded to this, to those who maybe are in home situations where there is abuse, for example, mm. being stuck in it and not being able to, and, and having to stay home and now um, be, be with a partner who, 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 who may be abusive, for, for example, who's also at home and feeling no way out. 
This can lead to suicides. This certainly can lead to, to, to severe, severe anxiety and depression. And I think, um, and that's being borne out. Um, and it was, it was worried about at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's something that in, in, in fact, in, in fact, uh, is happening. You know, we have uh, cases where we've got clients who struggled, you know, they were out in the workforce, they're having a really hard time, uh, you know, at work, and now they could work from home, and they started to, to maybe function better because they didn't like or couldn't cope with the, the dealing with coworkers or, or face-to-face dealing with coworkers. So they were able to sort of maintain somewhat of their employment and the ability to work by staying home. When they're asked to return to work, if they're no longer being accommodated, there are many, and we've had cases where they just can't go. They won't do it because of the panic attacks, mm. um, uh, you know, increased work stressors. They just don't, can't go back. I've had many cases like that now we're working on where, where they're being denied. Well, listen, hey, you, could, you, you work from home and now you don't want to work at, at the office. You're not really disabled. You know, you just don't want to go in. Mm. It's not the case. It's, mm-hmm. it's, they have social anxiety. Right. And, and, and panic attacks. So yep. uh, that we are we are already starting to see claims. I'm sure we will see m- many more of segments of the workforce who simply cannot cope now with actually, you know, are, have somehow been able to work because they were allowed to work from home. Maybe they've got stomach issues, irritable bowel, bowel syndrome, for example, and they, and they need facilities very frequently and they, they could work from home. But now if they have to go back into the office, a bank, whatever it might be, are going to struggle and be unable unable to do it. Mm. So, you know, and, and I've seen cases like this already. Mm. Um, had they still been in the workforce in the sense of if there was no COVID, they probably would have stopped working because they, they couldn't be able to continue in, in the actual work workplace itself. We're only able to continue with a combination from home. That gets taken away. You know, they won't be able to work and they, and they will have disability claims. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the show is Nanish Kotek. He is a barrister and solicitor with Kotek Law. You can find them on the website at koteklaw.com. And we are talking about uh, personal injury as well as the other kinds of um, law that they uh, deal with at Kotak Law, Disability and Personal Law. You know, one of the things you also mentioned there in terms of how you're seeing these these things that are coming up, do you think that we will see changes going forward? Do you think there will have to be changes? Are we going to fall back on the same kind of policies and challenges that you are going to have to have to bring forward to to court? Or, or do you think that, that through this this COVID-19 situation, we're going to see changes on both sides, whether it be from the policies that are being drafted and maybe more leniency or maybe more uh, inclusiveness in policies that are going to be drafted for, for mental illness going forward. How do you think it's going to be dealt with? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I hate to be cynical, um, but I, I don't think you will see uh, positive changes mm. in terms of how uh, disability insurers, for example, are, are dealing with mental health claims. Um, I don't think you'll see that. I think, you know, you're dealing with an institution uh, that has uh, institutions that have just processes that keep running their course. In fact, there are policies in the United States, disability policies, uh, where they actually exclude mental illness from from 
from being from being payouts or for having payouts for mm. and receiving disability benefits, and they may restrict them totally, or may say, well, you can only if 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 your disability is arising from depression, anxiety, or any other me- mental illness, you can only re- uh, receive benefits for two years. I would hope that we do not see that coming to Canada because I think it would be quite discriminatory, and I think that any employer who buys such a policy for its employees may be setting themselves up. Uh, to a claim for, you know, a human rights type of claim or or litigation that why would they have bought a policy that discriminates mm. against a certain segment of the population or a certain mm. group of its employees. So um, that's a risk we may face in the future for for uh, uh, policies that um, and the way they're worded in, in terms of how mental health claims are dealt with. But in terms of leniency, I, I don't think things will, will change. Mm. Um, I'm not just painting insurance companies as bad. They mm. have, we all need insurance, life mm. insurance, critical illness, disability, whatever it may be. We need this as, as part of our function in society and a part to protect ourselves for a rainy day. But it's very easy for them to take the, take the premiums. Uh, but sometimes as, as, as we see in our, our line of work, uh, when it comes time to pay the piper, they're not there. Right. What is the difference between short-term and long-term disabilities right. and uh, and personal injury versus disabilities? Sure. So let's look at the two types of policies that, that may be available uh, through, through employers or privately. A short-term disability, it, it, it is designed to pay for a, uh, a specific period of time, usually uh, maybe 15 weeks to six months and maybe a year. And often it's paid by an employer and administered by an insurance company. Sometimes it's paid by the insurance company too, but often you find the employer is directly responsible. That will transition to long-term disability as a person meets a test for disability. Most policies will have two tests for disability. For the first two years, it will be whether or not a, a, a claimant or a worker is, is disabled from performing the essential tasks of their employment. And after two years, it changes usually to whether or not the person is totally disabled from performing any gainful occupation that they're suited by way of education, training or experience or could become suited to by way way of education, training or experience. Um, So it it involves looking at other other um, forms of work, not not the not necessarily the one that they were performing before. Personal injury really is is a concept. The claims are are based in what's called tort. uh, That is negligent acts. The disability claims are based on contract. Personal injury could could uh, involve a car accident, a slip and fall, uh, product liability, medical malpractice, uh, for example. You know, the interesting question that I I see sometimes and it's a trick I think insurance companies play when you, know, you mentioned short and long-term disability. Hmm. Sometimes what they do is the insurance company will cut off the short-term disability a week or days, in fact, before the short-term disability is supposed to end. Then they say, well, you don't qualify for long-term because you didn't qualify for the full short-term disability period. And it's a trick they use. Mm. I think it's a trick because mm. really one week, you don't, you know, you, you can't pay them for that extra week. So what we do in that is we, we sue for both the short and the, and, and the long-term disability benefit. We, we sue mm. the insurer and sometimes the employer if they're, if they're the payer. And um, we do realize that our, our clients are, you know, they need the money. They, they can't work. And we get our claims out very quickly. 
We schedule what's called a mediation. Where, and when you sue, you know, the, the, the claim goes to much, someone much higher in the insurance company, not the same claims person, you know, mm. case manager dealing with somebody much more senior. And they have their in-house lawyers who get involved, take, looking at it with fresh eyes. We try to schedule the mediation uh, within that first year, sometimes, after, you know, six months later. Um, and, and get the case settled for the person so they can get either back home claim or a lump sum payment out to them that sufficiently covers them for the future. So that's the goal in what we do for people uh, is to get them paid as quick as possible because we understand that they you know, truly can't work and, you know, they don't want to lose their homes and, 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 uh, or, or their marriages. They, they desperately need money and we're mm-hmm. there to, to, to act quickly um, and to help them out in, 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 uh, in really some of the worst, uh, worst times of, of their life, right. David. And Anish, you mentioned uh, the costs and, and, and suing and those kind of things. And I know I, we hear a lot these days uh, in law firms advertising saying you don't pay in, in, unless yeah. we, we get paid kind of thing. It, it seems to be a much more amicable way, I guess, for, for the client moving forward. It is, David, and that's that's exactly what we do. Look, people cannot afford to pay an hourly rate. Then there'll be an access to justice issue. You wouldn't be able to hire a lawyer, you know. Mm. So we do mm. the same thing. If if we, if we take on a case and we're not successful in getting money for the client, uh, we we don't get paid, and nor do we even get paid our disbursements. So mm. we we do make sure that uh, you, you know we advocate uh, very well for our client, are able to get them. Uh, the settlement they deserve, um, and then then we are paid after that. And if you are successful, how how does that work? Because does that mean that um, that the insurance company you, you have sued or, or whoever you're going after pays that fee um, and the disbursements on your behalf, or who, how does that work? No. So what happens? They will pay the accessible disbursements. They will contribute a portion of money towards legal cost that the person has incurred. Mm. Um, and, and we obviously pay that to the client. Um, but um, we are, you know, we work on a contingency where we will take a percentage of, of the settlement. First, we knock off our disbursements, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, uh, you know, example is this, let's say a case settles for $100,000, for example, and, and this is a hypothetical, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first 10%, uh, and let's say, let's say it was 110,000. 10,000 were disbursements, that's taken off. From the 100,000, another 10% is given back to the client as cost. So we're billing a fee on the $90,000, usually it's around 30% is it mm. would be our fee. It depends. Sometimes it's, it, it could be more depending on how many years left on the, on the policy. Um, so the insurance company is definitely contributing to the legal fees of the client, helping them pay it uh, by contributing to costs and by, and, and by paying the disbursements. Uh, mm. So the client at the end of the day has sufficient money from, from this at, at, you know, at, with the outcome in our, in our firm, we don't settle a case without written instructions from a client and those written instructions will will include like we will be providing the client with exactly what's in their pocket, exactly mm. what our fees are, what our disbursements are, what our right. HST is, so they know how much we're billing and they know how much in their is in their pocket before right. they they agree to a settlement. Sure, and I guess that would make perfect sense because, as you say, if it's a if it's a settlement of a hundred thousand dollars, and let's say that's what they needed to have in order to ride out whatever the situation there is looking at, and and you're billing them for thirty percent, and that reduces it by you know a, a significant amount, which of course you need to be paid as well. Um, so I guess all of that gets taken into account. 
It, it does. The client needs to know what, what they're getting in their pockets. Um, and, you know, I'll make recommendations, but at the end of the day, the client, the client decides what to mm. settle the case at. Right. Nanish, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show. And I think that there's probably a, a further conversation for us to have at some future date. I appreciate being on the show. Thank you, David, and you take care. All right, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Nanish Kotek. He is a barrister and solicitor at Kotek Law. You can find them at kotechlaw.com online. And it's been a pleasure to talking to him about long-term disabilities and also disability and personal injury. And that is this portion of the show. Please don't go away. We'll be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show today, Leanne Kitty. Now, Leanne is on the show because she authored an article in the conversation entitled, What is Sustainability Accounting? What does ESG mean? Good question. And we have answers. That's what really got my attention. We have answers. So we're going to try and get some answers out of Leanne today. But before we talk to Leanne about that, Here's why she might have some of those answers. She obtained her undergraduate degree in business from Mount Allison University and her master's in business administration from McMaster University. She also has a PhD from Concordia University and she is a chartered professional accountant with a particular focus and passion for management accounting. Her work experience includes commercial finance, private company business validation. That's interesting. I'd like to maybe ask her about that. And work in the accounting education sector, most recently with the CPA Canada. Her current research investigates why companies use sustainability goals, there it is, and executive compensation packages, what kind of firms use these and what impact these incentives have on a firm's sustainability performance. So, Leanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's a pleasure. Now, before we get going, I'm sure you get this question all the time, <laughs> and that is, accounting, why are you in accounting? <laughs> what attracts you to accounting? But what attracted you to this kind of work? Yeah, so I've always been a numbers person, I guess you would say. Um, I've always had a, a, a talent for things in sort of math and science, and I actually started out uh, pursuing more biology, actually, okay. <laughs> and a bachelor of science. But uh, I ended up switching gears when I learned a little bit more about business, and I got very interested in how businesses worked. I ran a business for a while, uh, and the numbers side just clicked for me, I think because of that more or maybe scientific background, math-based background. Um, and I find it fascinating how we use the numbers to make decisions. So for mm. me, uh, I guess the numbers aren't really just numbers. It's it's telling a story about right. the business. Right. And in my early days of, of learning about accounting, uh, it was sort of explained to me that 
the origins of accounting were around providing an account for the business, mm-hmm. providing accountability, sure. uh, but telling that story of the business. And so when I discovered sustainability accounting, uh, also known as social and environmental accounting, that part really resonated with me because I thought, yeah, you know, the, the financial side, that's not the whole story of the business. That's not providing a full account of the impacts that the business is having. Uh, and so I got very, very interested in studying how organizations uh, could use this type of information to communicate their impacts on society and the environment and more recently uh, on sustainability itself. Interesting. Very interesting. I liked how you described that tie-in with science and business. Now, your article, what is sustainability accounting? A question mark. What does ESG mean? And we have answers. So, and I should also mention that Leanne is an assistant professor at Sprout School of Business at Carleton University as well. So, Let's get into this. The idea of what sustainability accounting is, first of all, what, what is that? Yeah, and it's, it's a great question. Uh, I, I did my best to try to answer some of it in the article, but um, it's really, it's in development. I would say at its core, it's trying to provide for that responsibility uh, in terms of communication of a firm's impacts on sustainability. And, you know, even within that, we don't have a universally accepted definition of what do we mean by sustainability, but I tend to think of it as a planetary level concept. So something that um, affects all of us on the planet, Um, I would include social and environmental in that. So issues around inequality, safety, diversity, uh, as well as the impact on the planet. Uh, And so if we think of sustainability as being that sort of worldwide sustainable level concept, um, the accounting part comes into how do we measure that? How do we communicate that? How do we understand how a firm might be affecting that in a positive or a negative way. And so sustainability accounting at its core is really trying to look at uh, providing those types of communication. And some of them are quantitative. Uh, It might be measuring, let's say, for example, greenhouse gas emissions from a firm. Uh, But it can also be qualitative. It can also be descriptive in terms of stakeholders' experiences and the impacts a firm may have on them as as well. Mm. Right. Now, you describe in your article sustainable ability accounting, pretty much like you said, a practice of measuring, analyzing, and reporting a company's social and environmental impacts. ESG, you say, refers to the environmental, social, and governance information about a firm. And you also, you, you brought this into the, to the picture as well. Post-pandemic, we're going to need to build back better and sustainability is going to be key in that issue. Now, you, you brought up some of those other things like inequality, inequity, that has also, COVID-19 has really brought forward in how that has affected the people's ability to even do their own job and be paid adequately and how that has all unfolded. So, do you think sustainability going forward is going to be something that is going to be looked at in a more serious manner? I hope so. <laughs> that would absolutely be be my dream. I, I do think there's a lot more attention being paid to it, which has the potential to be very impactful. Um, 
certainly if we're going to pay attention to true sustainability issues and measure those and report those in, in a, a way that really ties itself to that planetary concept, um, I am hopeful that we can see some real change. We have seen many companies paying more attention to this stuff. We have uh, more and more companies every year providing sustainability reports, uh, so detailing some of these impacts. We still have our challenges. We have uh, companies engaging in things like greenwashing, right, where they're not telling the whole story. They may only be talking about the positive effects or the positive impacts they're having. And that's not really in line with it. So I think we have a lot of work to do. Um, but as I mentioned in the article with ESG in particular, um, that tends to be a term used more, I would say, in the investing world. Uh, but the investments are turning towards this type of information, in part because there's growing uh, evidence that it's good business to pay attention to these factors, whether that be to reduce the risk or to take care of your social resources, the people that are working with you and for you, the communities that you're operating in, the uh, environmental resources that you may be using, uh, be it water or trees, wood, paper. Uh, so I think organizations are starting to realize that this is, is good business to pay attention to it, but also we're asking more questions. And I think on that front, when you have investors pushing for more change, as long as there is action behind it, I think we do have ourselves set up for potential uh, positive impacts down the road, but it remains to be seen whether or not that will be uh, enforced, whether people will um, take it seriously and actually push for real change. But I'm hopeful. I want to go back to the idea of no universal definition of sustainability, mm. because at the very heart, I think there is a universal understanding of what that is. And you allude to that. And that is the idea of meeting our needs without sacrificing the needs of our future generations and our current generations. Uh, I've heard it said, and maybe you've heard this as well, that we don't leave the earth to our children. We are borrowing it from our children because that's who we're leaving it to. Absolutely. I have four little ones myself and I uh, do this work in part for them because I really believe uh, we, we are borrowing the earth from our children. And I want to make sure that what we're borrowing, we hand back in better condition. I, I would uh, mm. aim for for mm. sure. In terms of a, a universal definition, I think we all do inherently have that. The challenge becomes when we start looking at regulations, um, accounting standards, and then we run into a little bit of difficulty because there are a lot of people claiming uh, to practice sustainability accounting or report their sustainability performance, but they're not actually making that connection to the future. They're not making the connection necessarily to the planet. Mm. Um, and so this is, this is an issue because we end up having reports that say, yes, we are sustainable or we are doing this, we are doing that. But really it's, it's about short-term concepts. Right. And I, I make a little bit of reference to this in terms of uh, some of the upcoming uh, standards that may be put into place. Uh, investors are very interested in this area, but I think we need to be careful that we don't allow uh, a short-term focus 
on particular issues to dominate what we actually need to see from firms. Uh, and a great example that was given on a call, and this is not my own, um, but it was Carol Adams that provided this example, was around the pandemic. And in terms of the pandemic, We've known that something was coming for a while. This right. has been predicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but investors were not asking questions of firms in, let's say, the tourism industry or restaurant industries, cruise ships, about what their pandemic plans were. Mm. They weren't thinking long term enough. Uh, so I think we have to be wary of letting investors drive Uh, what gets included in some of these standards because they tend to have a shorter term focus and perhaps not the planetary level sustainability definition or that future focus that I think we really need to make sure we're getting the information we need to create true sustainability. So I guess my fear would be as long as we're using the term sustainability in sort of that agreed upon fashion that we're really talking about the future and having something uh, like a circular economy and something that can be sustained, that's great. But if we're using the term in a way that uh, masquerades as sustainability, I think then we might be in danger. We may think we're getting something very different than what we're actually getting. Mm. I like that word you used about masquerading because it, it, it seems to me that what keeps coming back to me is just the way the markets operate and, you know, that that frenzy that goes on daily that we see, you know, um, perhaps now because of COVID-19, that may ch- do you think that might change because we have been forced into this situation? Just like you said, no one had these these things they weren't thinking about what would happen in a pandemic they weren't thinking about those things but that has now come forward and i'm sure that's going to be implemented in in many businesses plans going forward yeah i i think it's uh it's one of those things where we absolutely have to focus on the long term i mean as a species it's in our best interest just for survival the earth will go on without us but we need the earth (laughs) to survive so I'm hopeful. I'm an optimist. I am forever an optimist. That's why I do this work. I am hopeful that we can uh, facilitate change. And I do believe that there are organizations out there that are really trying to do better. Uh, I think we need a concerted effort from all areas, from government in terms of regulation, in terms of mandating this information from firms, because right now it's voluntary. So we do get some information but it's what a firm chooses to give us, right? And that, as I said, does not always represent the total picture. Mm. Um, But it's also not always in a firm's best interest to tell us everything because not everybody else is doing that. So I think we need mandatory information. Uh, It needs to be at that planetary level. It needs to be overall sustainability. Um, And I think we need it sooner rather than later. I, I really believe we have to do this. There are firms firms uh, focused on aspects of this, uh, but there are also firms that are not. And I think we need to have better systems in place, um, as I usually describe it, to identify the wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm. Um, Right now, there really are a lot that are hiding in plain sight, and we don't have good ways to tell them apart. 
Yeah, interesting. I think in your articles, you also allude to the fact that, that there's, what, about 100 companies or so that are causing about 70% of our, our greenhouse gases? Absolutely. I mean, I, when I came across that, I was fascinated because 71%, according to this report, of the greenhouse gas emissions are coming from just 100 companies. Mm. Now, on the one hand, that's kind of depressing. On the other hand, I think it speaks to if we can influence those 100 companies to make a change, that change could be potentially huge. Right. Um, but we need to have you know, standards in place. We need to get those firms to change. We need to be aware of, of who the firms are and what they're doing and how they're doing it. And absolutely, I mean, some of these companies have been aware uh, of greenhouse gas emissions uh, issues, for example, for decades and have not shared it have not brought it forth. Very, very similar to the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's an issue, but we need to force that information. I think we're at a tipping point now where uh, if we don't do something soon, it, it really is to our own detriment. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You could also be listening on one of your favorite podcast platforms and on our SoundCloud. You can always go there to listen to some of our previously recorded conversations and interviews at your leisure. My guest here on the show, today is Leanne Kitty. She is an assistant professor at Sprout School of Business at Carleton University, talking to her about her article that she authored in the conversation entitled, What is Sustainability Accounting? What does ESG mean? And we have answers. ESG refers to the environmental, social, and governance information about a firm. Now, we have been talking about uh, many of those aspects as as sustainability, what that means, the fact that it is voluntary at this point. Leanne, one of the things I, I, I was also thinking about as, as we've been talking is investors. You've been mentioning investors. And I, I was thinking about some of those, uh, you know, the companies have been operating also at the idea of their shareholders and, you know, the, and thinking about them instead of the big picture as well. And hopefully that's going to change. And, uh, you know, the other thing is that Shareholders are people. Companies are run by people. And we are all sharing this planet. And if we think about the business or what our what we're doing for our shareholders rather than the overall big picture. And if our share, if the shareholders are only looking at the short term idea of what am I going what are the dividends I'm going to get back or what am I getting in return and not thinking about our big picture, we're still running into the same old issues. Absolutely. And and I think that's a really critical point. Um, we are investors. <laughs> it's right. us, right? Uh, this is our money for those of us, you know, if you have a mutual fund or if you're fortunate enough to have a, a pension fund at work, maybe an RSP you have some investments in or TFSA, um, that's, that's your money. And if you've invested in these firms, you get a vote. One of the challenges is we tend to delegate those votes mm. to the companies. 
mm. to uh, the mutual fund companies. And so we're not always taking our power back and letting our voice be heard. Uh, but that is a powerful way if you use your vote to actually vote on some of the issues that come up on these topics or letting the mutual fund companies know or your pension plans know that, hey, we don't want this anymore. Right. That's a way that you can exercise your power. Um, and, and I'm fully aware, especially with inequality, not everybody is fortunate enough to have investments and the ones who, who typically don't are the ones who are suffering more so. Mm. Um, but I think that just raises uh, the stakes for all of us uh, that may be in the market, may be investors, to really take that responsibility seriously and not sit back passively, but, but actually make your voice heard and let them know that these are issues that are important to you, uh, whether it be that you want your investments to divest from some of these organizations, whether you want them to push for change. Um, there's a lot that we can do beyond, uh, you know, our individual lives as well and how we live, but particularly as investors, you know, where the money is, is typically where the influence is. Mm. All right. There has been for some time uh, investments that you can make that are uh, geared toward the the world. They're greener. Yeah, and, and there are uh, a number of funds that are, are coming online, uh, especially in the last year or so. We're, we're seeing more and more of these um, available. I will say, coming back to the sustainability accounting piece, mm -hmm. we still have a lot of challenges in terms mm -hmm. of measuring the real sustainability performance of the firm. So I would just say to be a bit cautious about uh some of them. It's not to say that that we shouldn't be paying attention to these things. We absolutely should. And we should be pushing for more information and for more change. Um, but the way we're measuring some of the stuff right now, as I mentioned, it's mostly voluntary. So firms um, can kind of say what they want to say. And that does influence inclusion in some of these funds. So it's still early days. It's, it's getting better. We're working hard. Uh, not just myself, but there's a lot of us in the community that are working really hard to try to improve how we look at these firms and how we measure it and what information is important. Um, but certainly, I think making your voice heard to say that these are important issues for you and that you want better information so you can make better decisions, I think will push the money to get that information, uh, make it higher quality and make it more relevant to true sustainability at a planetary level. You said early days. What do you mean by that? How, how long has sustainability sort of been something that in terms of accounting has been around or that is something that is being looked at? Yeah, I mean, the, the field itself has been around uh, arguably since maybe the 70s, mm. um, really kind of was developed in the perhaps 80s, 90s-ish. Um, but it's it's growing every day. We see more and more people, uh, say, on the academic side, pursuing research in this area. Um, and there's more of us trying to think about these issues and and what they mean for us as a society, for the planet, for firms as well. Um, and when I say early days, I guess what I really mean is that 
we don't have all the systems fully figured out just yet. So I don't want to make the claim that, you know, we know how to measure the exact performance of a firm and how it contributes to sustainability. We don't. And that's, I guess, my fear when we talk about some of the sustainable, responsible investing funds um, or ESG it gives the impression sometimes that that we figured it out. We know how to measure this stuff. And and the truth is we don't yet. We have improvements. Uh, we have better ways to do it now than we used to. And it's, it's growing every day. But we still have a lot of work to do. We still have uh, a lot more information to gather. Um, and that really comes back to the information that we get from firms or that's required by government, um, which comes back to this issue of of it being voluntary at this stage. As you were talking there, I couldn't help but think about someone else I interviewed who wrote a book on what if solving the climate crisis was simple. And uh, that's the name of the, the book he authored. In, in that book, he, he is a business owner. He was a business owner. And he moved on to other things in terms of the environment, which he's now focused on. And one of the things as a company that he did was look at the carbon put, footprint that they were producing. And he got his entire company to do simple Simple things to change to try and work towards that and you know changing light bulbs etc cetera, etc cetera, all of these kind of things and and other things that they did and he got the whole company involved and he, he saw a couple of different things that happened one uh, everyone was more involved and more more um, engaged in what they were doing at work and he started to see people starting to come up with their own ideas of what they could do to help change and, and do those kind of things but you know, he started to implement these little things and he was saying, these are just like nickel and dime things, you know, they're not really much. But when they finished and he had and he came back and he started looking at the numbers, they had done a drastic amount to reduce their carbon footprint. And it was amazing. They were saving money as well. So it was beneficial for them as a, as a business to do that. So I find that really interesting. And if, if more businesses did that, they might find the benefit of moving forward in this way as well. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention about that was... I forgot. <laughs> but uh, Well, I think you brought up some really interesting points, though. Mm. You know, one is bringing the information to the table changes the way you make decisions, right? Mm. And I think that's, that's a great point about um, how we decide to go ahead. Sometimes it's as simple as just being aware, right? Mm. If you have two projects to do and you're looking at them both and maybe they both make about the same amount of money, okay, well, we'll do one over the other. If you look at those same two projects and you say, oh, but wait, this one will have a lower carbon footprint, All of a sudden, it may change the way you're looking at that project and you say, well, as long as they're both profitable, then let's do the lower carbon footprint uh, version. But without that information, you may not make that same decision, which is why I'm so passionate about the information side. I think the second part that's really important is uh, when you mentioned about how everybody started coming up with ideas, Mm. right? And Mm -hmm. this is why, you know, diversity on a boardroom table is so important. Diversity Mm. in management. It's those diversity of ideas. Mm. It's bringing those different perspectives because everyone will come and see the issue slightly differently and bring such valuable insights. And I think that really is such a powerful, powerful potential tool 
to make changes. And that's why, you know, the the GRI standards, for example, they are multi-stakeholder focused. They take a variety of perspectives uh, to try to get, um, you know, I think of it as multiple snapshots of the firm from different angles. Um, In this case, it might be multiple snapshots of the problem to look at it differently and come up with different solutions. And I think that's really important as we go forward, that we are taking lots of different perspectives on the firm and the firm's impacts on different projects. Um, and, and again, I mean, just to be wary, I would be a bit wary about being solely focused on, say, investors as a group to guide the information that we need, because uh, they may only be looking at it from one perspective, or it might be more limited. Whereas when you gather all of those um perspectives, I really do think it leads to richer and better decision making. Right. Leanne, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been fascinating speaking with you. I thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about what is sustainability accounting and what does ESG mean? And we have answers and we've discussed some of those answers, I think, that we can look forward to. And I want to thank you once again for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. That is Leanne Kitty. She is an assistant professor at Sprout School of Business at Carleton University. It's been a pleasure talking to her. And that is our show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth each and every day right here on Element FM. And we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.